0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series today, The Authority of the King, with a message entitled, Lord of the Harvest. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 to chapter 10, verse 4, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: There are several Bible images that I find to be especially formidable. One of those images is the image of a harvest. You know, my wife grew up on a farm in the province of Saskatchewan, and the harvest is an image that she knows very well. And indeed, anyone from the Canadian prairies grasps the image of the harvest. Harvest is a time in which the labors of the farmers are rewarded. It's a time of hard work, but it's also a time of rejoicing. It's a time of urgency, but it's also a time of reward. The Bible is filled with images of harvest, especially when it comes to the advent of the day of the Lord. Here's one example. Joel chapter 3, verses 13 to 14 says, Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. There are actually two images, not just one image in this passage. See, one of those images is the image of the grape harvest, in which the wine press is now full, and the time is at hand to crush the grapes. The second is the image of the wheat harvest, and the sickle now stands ready to cut down the standing grain. But the two images express one reality. The day of judgment, of cutting down and of crushing, is here. God is about to roar from his throne in Jerusalem, and all nations will fall under his judging hand. He will cut down as a farmer cuts down his grain. Let's turn to another image. It's from Hosea chapter 6, verses 10 to 11. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. Now, the message here is also plain. Both Israel and Judah are about to encounter the the judging hand of God. But the image of a harvest explains why God has not judged them in the past. A farmer never cuts down the harvest until it's ripe or until the appointed time is at hand. In the same way, God never judges his people until the time of their sin is ripe or has reached the point where judgment should fall. When God judges, he who is the master farmer knows exactly when the time should be at hand. And once it's harvest season, it happens instantly. One more illustration. It's from Jeremiah 51, verse 33. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, the daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor at the time when it is trodden, yet a little while and the time of her harvest will come. So it should be clear that the biblical image of harvest is a rather frightening image. It's as if God is giving people and nations time to repent. And if they do not, their sin ripens. But then at the end, their sin is like fully mature standing grain and the harvest is unavoidable. No farmer would simply let mature grain remain unharvested and God's just like that the New Testament opens with an image of harvest just as ominous as one finds in the First Testament. Listen to the words of John the Baptist as he is announcing the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Matthew records his words in chapter three, verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, if you're paying attention, and I hope you are, You'll notice that John the Baptist added an image to the image of harvest. The First Testament usually pictures the harvest as an image of judgment. But John combines both the image of judgment with that of an image of blessing or grace or salvation. John pictures a winnower, that is, a man who stands with a large fork throwing up the harvest into the wind. And in the process, he's separating out the wheat from the chaff. The harvest, says John, is a time of separating out. It's a time when God both condemns the guilty and a time when he saves the righteous. And so John's message is that the time to repent is now, lest when the harvest comes, you're included among the chaff and the time for burning is at hand. So the harvest includes both reward and punishment. Now then, Jesus, the great king, comes and announces the kingdom. But as we've seen in Matthew, the kingdom comes in stages. Jesus goes about preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and just like John, he tells men and women to repent of their sins. And he also announces the great blessings of the kingdom, and he comes and heals the sick and drives out demons and forgives sins and even raises the dead. It's a time of great euphoria. The crowds that come to see him are growing exponentially, And yet we're not reading Matthew carefully unless we also see that that the time of judgment has been delayed until the harvest of the righteous is completed. And as Jesus sees the crowds that are coming to see him are growing, he has compassion on them because he sees them as a sheep without a shepherd. They're harassed and helpless. Another translation says that they're fatigued and forlorn. The truth is that the leaders these sheep have, that is, the Pharisees, are burdening them. In Matthew 15, verse 14, Jesus will call the Pharisees blind guides, and when the blind lead the blind, both fall into a pit. And then in Matthew 23, verse 4, he says that the Pharisees tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders. He has in mind the massive obligations they invented for people, all traditions that were added to the law, which continually put unmanageable expectations on people. I mean, one example is the burden of Sabbath. Imagine someone whose ox is in trouble on the Sabbath or someone who needs to see a friend on the Sabbath. I mean, all these are basic parts of human interaction, but they're burdened by hundreds of Sabbath requirements. Instead of seeing Sabbath as a joy that that could give rest each week, Sabbath was just another requirement. A burden laid on men's shoulders. The sheep were being harassed. They were fatigued by the burdens. They had nowhere to turn. And in response, Jesus invites the crowds to come to him. He says, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And and come they did, with diseases, people who were demon-possessed, the poor who didn't have enough to eat— and instead of burdening them, he blesses them, he heals them, he shows them the joys of the kingdom of heaven. And with that, we come to Matthew nine thirty-seven to 38. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers onto his harvest. Now, do you notice how the image changes? We no longer have the image of harassed and helpless sheep. We now have an image of a field, perhaps of grain, perhaps of grapes already to be picked. The harvest is plentiful, he says. But here, rather than judgment, this is a harvest of people who are invited into the blessings of the kingdom. And with that, we see how unique is the image of the harvest. In the First Testament, harvest was always an image of judgment. In John the Baptist, Harvest had two images, both judgment and of salvation. But in Jesus, it's not as if he does not teach that judgment is coming. But his teaching is unique. Judgment is coming, but because of the mercy of God, it's been delayed. And yet the image of salvation, of the the great deliverance of God, the part of the image that John spoke of, well, it's fully here in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is talking about not a harvest of judgment, but a harvest of mercy and kindness and of the salvation of God. Jesus knows this time is unique. And so when he says that the harvest is plentiful, he means that the size of the harvest is very vast. But because he's using the image of harvest, every farmer would have understood. Harvest time is a time of urgency. You don't have forever to bring in the harvest. No farmer ever goes on vacation at harvest time. There's a great urgency. If not enough harvesters are present, the harvest will be ruined. All the labors of the past, the the preparation of the law and the prophets that has led to this moment will result in nothing if the harvest isn't gathered in. And that's Jesus' image. The laborers are few. There are not enough workers on the field who can bring in this massive harvest. More are needed. So what to do? Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, let's advertise for missions and pastoral ministry and more elders and deacons and volunteers. Rather, he says, pray. Laborers are called and chosen by God. The harvesters he needs are of a very special kind. Not everyone is in the place where he or she can can bring the harvest in. That's because the rest of the New Testament is plain about that matter. The quality of the harvester is more important than the number of harvesters. remember the incident in Matthew 8, 19 to 22? And a scribe came to him and said, "'Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go.' Jesus said to him, "'Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, "'but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head.' Another of his disciples said to him, "'Lord, let me first go and bury my father.' And Jesus said to him, "'Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead.'" See, according to Jesus, you can't have harvesters who come with wrong motives, who look for status or who are not prepared to make the sacrifices necessary for the mission that he has.
0: As time speeds by, it's even more important that we consider how we live. That's why I'm so grateful for friends like you who walk with us verse by verse through the Bible. The encouragement we received recently from Ruth reminds us of how precious this is. Dr. John's teachings are fascinating and really bring the Bible to life for me. I can almost visualize the scenes in my mind, like watching a movie when I listen to him. I usually listen to the radio program at work and end up going home and rereading the passage he spoke about that day. And every time I see it through different eyes. What a great way to use the time we've been given. With minds transformed by the washing of God's Word, We're given different eyes and God's own heart to see the world we live in. If you'd like to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.
1: As we continue to read through Matthew chapter 10, this idea that, that not everyone is worthy to be a harvester, Well, that becomes all the more explicit. For instance, in chapter 10, verses 24 to 25, Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? It turns out that the harvest is not going to come in easily. It will be resisted at all points as humans and demons who have a vested interest in interrupting the harvest continue to resist at every level. The harvester must be prepared for that and must pay the cost. As we continue to read through the rest of the New Testament, especially in in passages like 1 Timothy 3 and, and Titus 1, we see the need for spiritual maturity in the harvesters. I mean, those are the passages in Scripture where where the later church is to look for elders and church leaders who will both teach the gospel and give oversight for the development of the church. And interestingly enough, and we don't have the time to study those passages now, but, but interestingly enough, what the elder is to do, that is, the skills he is to have, well, that's limited in that passage. The passage mentions the ability to preach and also the importance of knowing the deep truths of Scripture well, but that's it. After that, everything else is related to character, to faithfulness in marriage, to to the faith of the elder's children, to, to the reputation he has with outsiders, including the ethics in which he operates. That passage is all about the spiritual maturity of the elder and not the giftedness of the elder. But let's come back to our image in this passage. Harvesters are required the news of the coming of the blessings of the kingdom of heaven, the news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is exceedingly good news, and it's bringing in a great harvest, and from our perspective, bigger than we had ever imagined. We're like Peter, who, when Jesus told him to put the net out onto the other side of the boat, found that the fish he was bringing in was so great, it was about to break the net. There is then a great opportunity— Every once in a while I look back at my, you know, Bible school graduation annual, and there's a picture of me there. I'm about 20 years of age and and I do look goofy. We're supposed to put a favorite scripture beside our picture in, and, and I picked Isaiah chapter 6 verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, "Whom shall I send?" and "Who will go for us?" Then I said, "Here am I, send me." And that's all I knew then. God was calling harvesters and and I wanted to be one of them. And today that call still goes on missions, pastoral ministry, and volunteers in local churches. We need those who give sacrificially. We need prayer warriors. We need evangelist teachers and those who serve faithfully behind the scenes. That's because the harvest is so very great and the opportunities have never been greater. So I'm gonna say, how about you? Are you saying, Lord, send me? With so great a need and so great a harvest, Did you know we're living in the day of the the greatest harvest in human history? Will you say, send me? Matthew 10 now contains a very specific calling. Matthew now tells us what Jesus had done. In order to prepare the many workers for the harvest, he has called out 12 men. And you can only imagine the amount of followers that Jesus had gained. He was going to pick 12 men from the group, and as we know, these men would be charged with remembering everything he taught and did, and they were to lay the foundation for his ministry in both establishing the church and in faithfully recording what would eventually become our New Testament. When Mark relayed this account, he tells us that Jesus spent the night in prayer beforehand. That's because of what Jesus had in mind with these 12. The entire future of the harvest would depend on this group. Let's read Matthew 10, verse 1. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits and to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Do you see what they do? Jesus is vesting his authority in these 12. They're given a distinct privilege, a privilege shared by no other Christian. They act in a unique way on his behalf. You know, often Christians don't understand that. And sometimes we quote promises that were made only to them. So, for instance, John 14, verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. I know we often like to quote this for ourselves, but but that's not so. What Jesus tells the twelve who witness him is simple. The Holy Spirit will give them supernatural recall of what he taught and what the implications of that are, and that will form the foundation of the church. In Ephesians 2 and 4, what we learn from the apostles forms the foundation of the church. And that's what our New Testament is. It's the the witness of the apostles of all that Jesus taught. And Jesus promised them that he would send the Holy Spirit to make sure that they communicated about him in an authoritative way with no errors at all that what they said was trustworthy and was all that the church needed to know to carry on the life of Jesus. And that's also why in 1 Corinthians 12:28 we learn that there is an order that God placed in his church. First, there were the apostles, those whom Christ chose here in this passage, along with one more— who is Paul untimely chosen. And then secondly, there are the prophets. And these are men like Mark, Luke, James, Jude, and so forth. They also wrote the New Testament, but they were directly mentored and supervised by the apostles. So for instance, Peter supervised Mark and James, Paul supervised Luke. And by the way, that's why I really don't like red letter Bibles, as if the words that Jesus spoke are more important than the other words in the New Testament. In fact, every single word in our New Testament is precisely what Jesus wanted to have there. All the New Testament comes with the authority of those whom Jesus vested with the authority to speak on his behalf. That's why Jesus himself never wrote any of our Bible. He called men whom he taught and then whom he gave the Holy Spirit to proclaim exactly what he wanted to have said. Then third place, says 1 Corinthians 12, 28, in every church are the teachers, and their job is to learn the writings of the apostles and prophets and to be so immersed in that stuff that they can teach exactly that which the apostles taught with complete accuracy. And then with every generation, Jesus raises up more preachers and teachers to teach these things to every believing church until Christ returns. And then says 1 Corinthians 12, 28, Having laid that foundation, lastly come all the other gifts, all the other harvesters God places in his field, who in effect, in this kind of structure, are being led by Jesus. That's why this choosing of the twelve is so significant. Everything about the unfolding of the kingdom depends on this choice. And so reading Matthew 10, 2-4, The names of the twelve apostles are these. For Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. With these 12, Jesus laid a perfect foundation. Matthew gives us their names. And what a group of men they were. On the one hand, you have men like Peter, who gets lots wrong, and he's an enthusiastic optimist. And then there's Thomas. He's a pessimist. And then there's Simon the Cananean, who is also called Simon the Zealot. Zealots were eager to overthrow the Roman government. And then there's Matthew, who is getting rich from the Roman government. And some of them, like Matthew and Peter and John, left a long written record, most simply led verbally. But as different as they were, Jesus molded them into the foundation for the church, with the exception, of course, of Judas Iscariot. So why did he do that? Because he had compassion on the crowds. Because he loved the fallen and sinful and lost and ravaged children of Adam, whom he called sheep. Well, that's a nice story, but do you hear the call? If today you're a believer in Christ, will you hear the story of a great gospel, the story of a great need, The story of a ripe harvest and the groundwork of Jesus laying a perfect foundation for our faith. Will you hear that and simply smile and say, well, I'm so glad that happened? Or will you be like Isaiah who says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom will I send into my harvest field? And will you say, here am I, send me. So what will you do? Are you called overseas? Are you called to full-time ministry? Well, most are not. But one thing is certain. You were not called to do nothing. Will you say to the Lord of the harvest, Here am I, send me.
0: John, thanks so much for today. You know, the passage says the harvest is plentiful, but I don't know. A lot of us look around, we don't see a harvest at all. So, where is the harvest?
1: Yeah, that's a great that's a great point. Why doesn't the harvest come to my neighborhood, yes? Um, so, I, I, like to, I like to address that, especially, let's get specific to this country. I think, and I have uh, said so in different blogs and in other places, that the greatest opportunities that lie before us in this country are among the immigrant peoples who are coming, Many of them have never heard the gospel and are interested in it. Some of them have been told that Canada is a Christian nation. And so they're you know on their way. Some, many of them will just seek out a church to hear for the first time. But I'm gonna say that every single one of us should be noticing if immigrants move into our neighborhood, take the time to get to know them, share with them right at the outset that I'm a Christian and I'd like to welcome you here and and tell them about the Jesus that you serve. And you might be amazed at how open they
0: are. So that doesn't always happen, but it does happen. So there is harvest around you. Thanks, John. A great word of encouragement and challenge. Join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. made plans to join us April 24th to May 2nd, 2022, for the next Israel Experience? Maybe you're holding back and we understand, so we've made it easier to register and easy to be refunded if for some reason we're unable to travel. So don't hesitate, register before the limited space is sold out. Join Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, recently confirmed musical artist Laura Hastings, and the Back to the Bible Canada team. Travel to the Holy Land where Jesus, Paul, and David walked. Visit the Jordan River, David's royal palace, sail the Sea of Galilee, commune at the Garden Tomb. While the full Israel itinerary is now available, so for more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca.